Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's Security Studies Program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns, and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series, where prominent voices in political science are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Michael Posnanski. Dr. Posnanski is Associate Professor in the Strategic and Operational Research Department at the U.S. Naval War College and the author of In the Shadow of International Law, Secrecy and Regime Change in a Post-War World. His work appears in many prominent outlets, such as the American Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, and the Journal of Politics. In this week's episode, Dr. Posnanski asks, How has the liberal international order shaped American foreign policy? He says the answer lies between arguments put forward by proponents and critics of America's approach towards a liberal world order. Thank you. So I want to begin by providing uh, some context. So in 2016, the election of Donald Trump caused lots of consternation uh, among proponents of the liberal international order that the United States might step away from the helm of this system it had uh, ostensibly led since 1945. Donald Trump famously withdrew from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Paris Climate Accords, denigrated many allies, including calling into question whether or not America would honor Article 5 of NATO, although that was walked back, um, withdrew funding for certain UN agencies, and so on and so forth. Um, And for many, this was quite alarming. And proponents of liberal order articulated a variety of concerns in this regard. John Eikenberry wrote in Foreign Affairs that Trump's every instinct runs counter to the ideas that have underpinned the post-war international system. Rebecca Lister and Mira Rapp Hooper wrote that Trump explicitly repudiates the core tenets of liberal internationalism and implicitly rejects the United States position atop the liberal international order. Uh, Evo Dalder and James Lindsay wrote that Trump was abdicating American leadership. And your very own Barry Posen, who I'm not suggesting is a proponent of liberal international order, uh, wrote in Foreign Affairs that Trump has taken much of the liberal out of liberal hegemony. And so for this very same reason, just as there was alarm about Trump, there was an enthusiastic embrace of the Biden administration in January 2021. Biden's goal, according to Jake Sullivan recently, was to restore and repair alliances, recapitalize and invest in international institutions, rejoin climate accords and lead on those issues, promote democracy, human rights and so forth. Uh, John Eikenberry said in an interview last year that the Biden administration was, quote, reversing a series of Trump calamities and laying the groundwork, uh, ground for a return to the American playbook over the last 75 years. I just learned 10 minutes before this talk that in 2021, he also wrote an article um, saying that Biden was uh, the most significant president in some ways since FDR. So there's definitely enthusiastic embrace of the Biden administration. And according to foreign policy, members of the Biden administration transition team back at the end of 2020 were self-consciously incorporating elements of Eikenberry's new book, A World Safer Democracy, into their renewed grand strategy for the United States moving forward. But not everybody is so sanguine about the Biden administration or this enterprise of liberal international order. Pat Porter wrote an article a couple years ago called Wrestling with Fog on the Elusiveness of Liberal Order, and in a book in 2020 went even further and said that not only did the liberal order never exist, 
Such an order cannot exist. Neither the USA nor any power in history has risen to dominance by being ethical, straight, or truthful. In a pair of articles in International Security a few years ago, Charlie Glazer and John Mearsheimer echoed similar sentiments. Glazer wrote that the LAO concept, as he called it, is unable to explain much of the interaction uh, of the United States with its adversaries or allies. And Mearsheimer similarly wrote, it would be a mistake to think that the liberal international order is in trouble solely because of Trump's rhetoric or policies. So essentially, we have these two competing camps. We have the skeptics of liberal international order who look back at American foreign policy over the last 75 years and see that the United States has never complied with the liberal order when it was inconvenient to do so. And we have liberal order proponents who argue that, save for some notable exceptions like the Bush administration and the Iraq war in particular, and the Trump administration, by and large, the United States has championed the liberal international order. So this book project is going to chart a middle course between these two poles. It begins with the premise that compliance with the liberal international order shouldn't be thought of as binary, that the U.S. either does it or doesn't do it. And in fact, that by framing it in that way, we're leaving lots of rich variation on the table. And instead, I'm going to argue that the type of compliance with the liberal order, which I'll explain uh, in a moment, is driven actually by two main factors. The first is how burdensome it is to comply with the core liberal order's tenets. This can run on a scale from low to high. The more burdensome it is to comply, the more likely leaders are to want to violate the liberal order. And the less burdensome, the less likely they are to want to violate. Doesn't mean they will. It just predisposes them to want to. The second factor influencing America's strategy of compliance with the liberal order is the perceived intensity of great power competition. Again, runs on a scale from low to high. The higher the intensity of great power competition, the more likely leaders are to perceive that violating the liberal order would be costly, and vice versa. And although there are a variety of more specific recommendations, I'm going to highlight two top-line ones here. All else equal, we should expect more covert or discreet violations when great power competition is fierce, and more overt violations when great power competition is muted or lessened. So the remainder of the talk, I'll walk through these kind of four elements. I'll situate this book project in the broader liberal order debate. I'll then outline my argument, which I just previewed a moment ago. I'll describe some evidence. This is, I'll be a pretty preliminary. This is kind of what I'm in the midst of. So definitely happy to engage and talk about this material. And then I'll, I'll conclude with some conclusions about scholarly and policy implications. So let's begin with the liberal order debate. So what is the liberal order? It means lots of different things to lots of different people, as you all are doubtless aware. And so I'm going to try to identify a least common denominator definition. The liberal order generally refers to this international order or architecture that the U.S. helped to create after World War II. It includes economic, diplomatic, and military organizations. It includes things like Bretton Woods, the International Monetary Fund, the, World, um, the GATT, later the World Bank, the United Nations, NATO, and so forth. One of the chief characteristics of the liberal order is that it's predicated on consent, which means members participate voluntarily rather than command through imperialism or coercion uh, or balance of power politics. And it's also open and largely rule loosely rule-based, which means that members have voice opportunities to contribute to the character and nature of these organizations and their functioning, and the hegemon in the United States is, is bound in similar ways as other uh, as other members of the liberal order. 
I think a lot of the debates about whether the liberal order exists, is it a thing, does the U.S. care about it, really boils down to whether or not the U.S. has complied with many of the liberal order's core tenets over time. And a lot of debates center on this, but it's really difficult sometimes to figure out what compliance with the liberal order means. It could be a really squishy concept. And so I'm going to argue here that it actually makes more sense or it's more tractable to think about compliance with the liberal order in terms of discrete issue areas rather than in general or generic terms. So, for example, what does the liberal order say about the rules governing the use of force? And then we can match the empirical record against whether or not the U.S. has largely complied or not complied with those particular rules. We could do the same for economics and, and diplomacy, but I'm going to focus here today on use of force. So some of the key tenets of the liberal order as it pertains to the use of force includes things like the non-intervention principle, which is enshrined in Article 2.4 of the U.N. Charter, basically says states can't violate one another's sovereignty, including territorial uh, integrity like uh, Crimea in 2014, or political independence like regime change operations. There are exceptions to the non-intervention principle. These include things like self-defense, either individually or collectively, through the UN Security Council or NATO or other regional bodies. And by and large, the liberal international order prioritizes multilateral action over unilateral action. So the, for the proponents of the liberal order, those who believe it exists and is beneficial, um, the liberal order system and this concept of strategic restraint where the U.S. gives up certain opportunities and ties its own hands has a number of benefits, right? It doesn't have to be out of benevolence or the goodness of the United States' heart to the extent that it has one, um, but it actually has real benefits. This includes things like building legitimacy, which has a variety of, of beneficial uh, properties, and also it helps the United States lock in power at the top of this system as it inevitably faces new challengers and competitors. Liberal order proponents also argue that the LIO has steadily expanded and deepened over time. During the Cold War, we had this bifurcated system with the United States and Soviet Union locked uh, in this superpower, great power competition with one another. And nested within that, we had this smaller liberal order primarily based in Western Europe and parts of East Asia. And that when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, as Eikenberry put it, the inside order became the outside, right? China was brought into the WTO. There was cooperation with Russia. NATO steadily expanded eastward, uh, which suddenly has um, real-world pertinence, um, and a variety of other ways in which institutions expanded and deepened at the end of the Cold War. Liberal order proponents have addressed to some degree aberrations or exceptions to uh, this otherwise rosy story of compliance with the liberal order, things like why did Bush invade Iraq in 03 or the Trump administration. And by and large, they do accept that these are exceptions, but pitch them as aberrations and believe that leaders will either be forced back into compliance, like closer to the second term of the Bush administration, and that you know Trump was only elected to one term, and that the return of the Biden administration is a net positive for liberal order. The skeptics, unsurprisingly, take a radically different view of the last 75 and change years of American foreign policy history. First, they argue that this track record belies this rosy picture that liberal order proponents paint. And actually, if liberal order is to mean anything, it can't just be that the United States complies with it when it's convenient to do so. That would be an easy test. Instead, the U.S. must actually comply with liberal order tenets when it's inconvenient to do so. And on that score, the U.S. gets a big F, 
The U.S. has largely never complied with the liberal order whenever it was inconvenient to do so. They point to things like the track record of foreign intervention and meddling, America's history of using unilateral action when it suited its interests, economic coercion and protectionism despite a commitment and fealty to free trade and so forth. So each of these approaches, I think, brings something important to the table but has its own unique set of limitations. The proponents, I don't believe, have mounted a convincing rebuttal to the notion that the skeptics put forward that the United States has violated some of the core tenets of liberal order historically in the last 75 and change years. The skeptics, on the other hand, although they're onto something by pointing to rule violations, haven't explored variation in how those violations manifested. And what I mean by that is in some cases, leaders went out of their way to conceal or hide the fact that they were violating tenets of the liberal order. And in other cases, they did so openly and brazenly. And we don't yet have a good sense from the skeptics as to why that might be the case. And this is particularly important because covert action imposes a variety of meaningful restrictions on the intervener, including the need to work through proxies, limits on the amount and kind of support you can provide uh, without exposing your hand and so forth. So these are constraints of, a, of an important kind. So the claim here is that we need to move beyond thinking about compliance in binary terms, as I mentioned, and pursue richer variation. And that's what I'm going to explain now. So to preview, as I mentioned at the top, the argument boils down to two main factors that determine strategies of compliance by the United States. The first is the perceived burden of following or complying with, uh, with what the liberal order prescribes. And the second is the intensity of great power competition. And this gives us a nice typology that that it contains richer outcomes than just compliance or none. And I'll explain each of these um, factors in, in, uh, in greater detail, and then I'll put them together to generate some predictions. So let's start with the burden of compliance. What I mean by this are leaders' beliefs about how much they're affecting the chances of achieving their foreign policy objectives if they do what the liberal order prescribes. To say that compliance the burden of compliance is high, therefore, is to suggest that leaders don't think they can operate through the tenets of the liberal order and still get what they want. And to say that the burden of compliance is low suggests that they believe they can. And this variable affects whether or not leaders want to violate the liberal order. All else equal, it would be better to work through liberal international order precepts because it helps build legitimacy and there's a variety of other benefits. But if it's going to be so burdensome that you're unlikely to accomplish your objectives, leaders are more inclined to want to violate those core tenets. And as I said uh, at the top, it doesn't mean they will. This is just about their desire to violate. So let me, let me provide a hypothetical example that I think will hopefully drive this home. Consider a case in which the United States is interested in pursuing regime change abroad, right? The U.S. and a target state have deep fundamental disagreements. You could think Fidel Castro... Uh, and, and others, um, Saddam Hussein, and they're considering how they're going to go about pursuing regime change and whether they're going to. To say that the burden of compliance is low means that leaders believe they can operate with a Security Council authorization or through regional and other bodies and still achieve their ultimate objective of regime change. To say that the burden of compliance is high means that leaders don't believe they can operate through the organizations and organs of the liberal order and still accomplish their goals. That could be because the Security Council has vetoed or is unwilling to approve of the operation the U.S. is interested in pursuing. Um, it could also mean that it would just be so onerous and uh, delay 
the United States so much that they're unlikely to achieve their objectives. And this could come about because of a difference of opinion um, and other, other forms of delay and stalling tactics by members who might otherwise authorize certain types of behavior. All right. The second factor influencing strategies of compliance with the liberal order is the intensity of great power competition. This is defined simply as the presence or absence of peer competitors or near-peer competitors with the United States. And all else equal, I'm arguing that violations are more costly for the United States when it faces a peer competitor than when it doesn't. And there are several reasons for that. When the U.S. is locked in great power competition, violating the liberal order can make it appear more threatening, and it can make allies and weakly aligned states move away from it. So for kind of bona fide allies, it doesn't mean they'll outright defect from the order, but they might engage in various forms of resistance or otherwise make it costly for the United States to pursue its objectives. For weakly aligned states that might tilt towards one great power or the other, it can push them into the arms of a rival. And violating the liberal order during great power competition can also enable what Jeff Colgan and Nick Miller call competitive shaming and give rivals the opportunity to use violations as a cudgel to, again, peel away weakly aligned states, cause doubt among allies, and otherwise embarrass the U.S. The costliness of violating the liberal order's tenets go down dramatically in the absence of great power competition. Allies in weakly aligned states simply have fewer resistance options given the absence of a peer competitor. It's also less painful for the United States if they withhold cooperation. And of course, there's no rival to competitively shame the hegemon, in this case, the U.S., uh, when there are violations. So this factor affects how costly leaders believe it would be to violate the liberal order. If we put these two things together, um, we get these four strategies of compliance with the liberal order. On the top here, we have the burden of compliance, which can be low or high. And on the side here, we have the intensity of great power competition, which can be low or high. And it creates these four strategies. I'm going to define these in a moment, but I'm just going to say them, right? We have convenient and feigned compliance, and then we have brittle compliance and brazen non-compliance. So here's a smaller version of the table with actual definitions for each of these strategies. And I want to walk through them quickly because I think it's important these are the main outcomes or dependent variables of the study. Let's start in the case when the first row, when great power competition is intense. In these cases, if it's really burdensome to comply with the liberal order, leaders will engage in what I call feigned compliance. This is where they pursue covert action and relegate other violations to the covert or secret realm, uh, or otherwise try to, try to behave discreetly to minimize others' perceptions that they're violating the liberal order. Those discreet things could be stuff like um, arms transfers and so forth. Uh, there's a really good article by Roseanne McManus and Karen Yarhimilo a few years ago that talks about these kind of discreet forms of foreign policy that, that limit visibility. And the reason for this is they believe violations would be costly, but they also want to violate because it's burdensome to follow the liberal order's tenets. So they settle for feigned compliance, essentially. The story looks different when the burden of compliance is low, even under great power competition. Here, they'll engage in what I call convenient compliance. This is they have all of the justification they need through Security Council authorizations or NATO support and so forth. And so they capitalize on that and operate through the core tenets of the liberal order, both rhetorically and operationally. Now, what about when the intensity of great power competition is low? So here, leaders believe that violations would be far less costly, if you recall from two slides ago. 
And so when the burden of compliance is really high, leaders both want to violate and they think it would be less costly. They engage in what I call brazen noncompliance. This is essentially overtly flouting the rules. When great power competition is low, but there's, it's easy to comply with the liberal order, the final strategy you get is what I call brittle compliance. This is where leaders appear to operate within the parameters of what the LIO suggests they should because it's cheap to do so, but they're very willing to overtly violate the rules in the event that it becomes necessary to do so and may even sideline various participants who are providing that legitimacy, like NATO or the Security Council and so forth. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays at SSP featuring Dr. Michael Poznanski. Okay, so what are some advantages of this typology? I think there are several. For the skeptics, lumping all violations into a single category, as I mentioned, overlooks important differences in how rule-breaking manifests in the liberal order, and therefore risks overlooking different forms of hegemonic constraints. There's a qualitative difference, I'm arguing, between brazenly and openly violating rules like in Iraq 03 and secretly violating them like the Bay of Pigs, for example, where the U.S. secretly tried to subvert Fidel Castro in 1961. For the proponents of liberal order, lumping positive cases of positive compliance together also paints a misleading picture, but for a different reason. These two strategies here brittle and convenient compliance look observationally equivalent, right? The United States is following what the liberal order suggests they should. But the difference is that we see real and important variation as the burden of compliance rises or becomes prohibitive. In the case of brittle compliance, leaders are willing to overtly subvert rules. And in cases of feigned compliance, when liberal order is, uh, when great power competition is intense, they're willing to secretly subvert rules, but not openly. Now, I want to address one potential objection, happy to talk about this in the Q&A, uh, to the theory. And that is essentially that the two main variables I've identified that explain patterns of compliance are not actually independent of one another. This would arise in the case when complying with the liberal order is systematically easier when great power competition is less intense and harder when it is intense. And there are at least two responses to this claim. First, in order for this to be true, it would have to be the case that the U.S. finds it systematically easier to legitimate its actions when the perceived intensity of great power competition is low. Okay, so easier to follow the liberal order when great power competition is absent or less intense. The problem is that concerns about the Unipol's intentions, which we know from the literature on unipolarity, should make it unlikely for smaller states to just accede to whatever the United States wants to pursue. doesn't mean they have anywhere to balance to. But it just means they might worry about the Unipol's intentions and so engage in various forms of pushback and not necessarily be willing to legitimate the United States actions. But even if it is easier for the United States to legitimate its actions when great power competition is less intense and harder otherwise, this would simply affect the frequency or rate of certain actions as opposed to the underlying mechanisms. What I mean by that is this. We would expect more cases of brittle compliance because the burden of complying is low when great power competition is absent. But in cases when the U.S. couldn't get what it wanted, we would still see overt violations or brazen noncompliance. Conversely, we'd expect more cases of feigned or covert, feigned compliance or covert violations when great power competition is intense. But we should see the U.S. capitalizing on the liberal order 
uh, institutions when it's able to do so. So again, this is more of, if this were true, which it's not necessarily ex ante the case that it is, it would affect the rate or frequency and not the underlying logic, if that makes sense. So I'm going to talk briefly about the evidence. This is kind of where I'm at right now in the weeds of piecing together uh, the various cases to substantiate uh, the theory I just outlined. The evidence is going to come in three forms in the book or across three periods. The idea is to evaluate patterns of U.S. compliance with the rise and fall of great power competition from 1945 to the present. And the, case, the book is going to prioritize comprehensiveness over going too far in depth in any one case, right, to show broad patterns. And the three periods the book looks at are what I call the era of constraint, which is the Cold War, the era of adjustment, which is as the Soviet Union is declining and eventually collapses into the mid-1990s, and the era of assertiveness, which is like the latter half of the 1990s into the 2000s. The reason it's important to break it in three, as opposed to just doing constraint and assertiveness, is that this is, I think, where we're actually going to see some really interesting predictions that follow from the theory. So the, the era of constraint, great power competition is obviously high, and in the late 90s, it's obviously low. But what happens as the United States transitions from one period to another, right? Essentially, the idea is it's not a light switch where the Soviet Union collapses and the United States suddenly embraces assertiveness, but rather we should see policymakers wrestling with what they can get away with and how costly it would be, and we might be able to pick that up in the cases. So I'm going to talk about a few cases from the era of adjustment and assertiveness chapters, because that's where I'm kind of working right now, to, to preview. Um, this will include three cases, Operation Just Cause, the invasion of Panama, Desert Storm, and the bombing of Bosnia in 1995. The era of assertiveness will include the bombing of Iraq in 98, Kosovo in 1999, and Iraq 03. Um, and then the era of constraint will explore lots of covert action cases, and, and as well as variation in the use of force, including in Korea and Vietnam and so forth but very open to suggestions about cases you'd like to see or interpretations of what I'm about to provide. I'm just going to walk through two from each and then get to conclusions. So the era of adjustment, one of the first cases I'm going to discuss today is Desert Storm, occurred between 1990 and 1991. Saddam Hussein, as, as background, uh, invades Kuwait in early August 1990. Several days later, the U.S. deploys forces to protect Saudi Arabia in Operation Desert Shield. By late November, they get Security Council authorization to use all necessary means to evict Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. And by January 16th, the bombing begins after the deadline of January 15th to withdraw troops lapses. So in terms of the dependent variable, this is a case of both convenient and feigned compliance. The convenient compliance portion is that the United States openly expels Saddam Hussein from Kuwait under the Security Council's umbrella. With a large multinational coalition, it's doing what the liberal order suggested it should. The feigned compliance part is the aspect of this case where the U.S. is covertly working to depose Saddam Hussein through a series of covert action measures. Now, in why does the United States pursue this dual strategy? To begin with, one factor is that the burden of complying with that liberal order was variable. When it came to evicting Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, by and large, the United States had widespread multilateral support to do so. It did take some convincing of the Soviet Union and France and some other countries in the Middle East, but by and large, they supported 
strong and aggressive and muscular action to kick Saddam out of Kuwait, the polar opposite of their reactions to actually deposing Saddam. There was vehement opposition, maybe with the exception of Margaret Thatcher in the UK, about this goal. So the U.S. doesn't think it can work through the liberal order to depose Saddam, but easily thinks it can do so to evict him from Kuwait. So that's the variable burden of compliance. And the reason the U.S. follows this kind of covert strategy for regime change and overt strategy for expulsion is they're really sensitive to the cost of violating the liberal order. They believe that unilateral action would be costly and alienate states in the Middle East and Europe and elsewhere. And they also think this is especially true of unilaterally pursuing regime change against Saddam Hussein. So as so this is still the era of adjustment. And as the years march on, we get another crisis, this time in Bosnia. Obviously, there are others I'm skipping, like Somalia and Haiti and so forth. Um, but Bosnia, I'm going to talk quickly about deliberate force. The crisis starts in 1992 with Bosnian Serbs pitted against Bosnian Muslims and other minority groups. Um, the Bush 41 administration doesn't do too much, and Clinton is left figuring out how to respond to this crisis. And so what we see across these three years, from 1993 to 1995, is policymakers wrestling with brittle compliance. Basically, can I work through the liberal order what it suggests I do in this case and get what I want, or do I have to act alone? And we see policymakers consistently toying with the idea of unilateralism. Um, I don't, I don't want to get too in, too into the weeds, but that took the form of what was called lift and strike. The lift part was lifting the embargo that was preventing Bosnian Muslims from getting arms and concurrently carrying out airstrikes against Bosnian Serb targets. This was in contrast to what the Europeans were calling for, which was that the United States joined the UN Protection Force and put boots on the ground for that purpose. By 1995, members of the Clinton administration are willing to go it alone, which we see in the declassified documents and the secondary accounts, but fortunately for them, they ultimately win UN support and NATO support. Now, why does the US pursue this strategy? The, the basic argument is that the burden of complying with the liberal order changes over time in this case. To begin with, the US is really reluctant, and Clinton in particular, to put troops on the ground. It wants to do lift and strike. The Europeans don't want them to do it. So this is raising the burden of compliance, right? The US can't get what it wants, which is staying in the air and not putting troops on the ground and work through the liberal order for years. Europe strenuously objects, especially while they have peacekeepers on the ground. But Europe and Russia eventually accede to the US preferred policy. It is the case that Clinton eventually agrees to put about 20 to 25,000 troops into Bosnia, but for the sole purpose of evacuating the UN Protection Force and then carrying out the preferred policy. And what's really interesting about this case is the evolution of sensitivity to costs of violating. And this is key, I think, to the era of adjustment. Initially, policymakers walk up to the ledge of unilateralism and always back down because they don't want to rupture relations with NATO and, and ruffle Europe. And they're worried about Russia, which Clinton is really trying to build a strong relationship with him at that time, with Yeltsin. But as the crisis wears on, the Clinton administration essentially adopts National Security Advisor Lake and uh, Ambassador to the UN Madeleine Albright's position, which is, go it alone if needed, don't worry about ruffling feathers. And as I said, they don't have to do that because the UN and NATO support them. But if we just focused on the fact that the US complied, we would miss that they were willing to go it alone if needed. 
two quick, I'm going to tick through very quickly these last two cases. This is the era of assertiveness, the late 90s. Um, the first case is Operation Desert Fox, a four-day bombing campaign in 1998 to punish Saddam Hussein for noncompliance with inspectors. Um, policymakers here, case of brazen noncompliance, right? The U.S. conducts a bombing campaign with the U.K., France, Russia, Security Council strenuously object. The Clinton administration openly embraces the concept of regime change, not through military action at this point, but through the Iraq Liberation Act and other forms of support. But they say this rhetorically uh, in public quite frequently. The bur and so why do they pursue this strategy? First, the burden of complying with the LIO is quite high. The Security Council won't authorize military action against Saddam Hussein. France, Russia, and Saudi Arabia in particular are vehemently opposed. And the Clinton administration is pretty insensitive to the cost of violating the liberal order. Policymakers knew global opinion was unsupportive. They knew it would sour relations with Russia and China and others, and yet they proceed anyway. Final case I want to talk about is Kosovo, Operation Allied Force in 1999. This case falls somewhere between brittle compliance and brazen noncompliance. And the reason for that is, first, as is well known, the U.S. operated without the support of the U.N. Security Council. So in violation of this kind of gold standard under the liberal order. They do operate with NATO, but the declassified documents and, and memoirs suggest that they were willing to go it alone at various points if they needed to do so. So why do they pursue this strategy? While the burden of complying with the LIO is mixed, Russia vehemently opposed to punishing Slobodan Milosevic uh, to stop attacking the Kosovar Albanians. And many NATO countries are actually reluctant to pursue the use of force in this case without UN authorization, although they do ultimately come around. And Clinton is, again, pretty insensitive to the cost of violating the liberal order. It enraged Russia and further strained relations between the two nations. And many in Europe were outraged by the operation. Even France, who signed on, called the U.S. a hyperpower and started to worry about America's intentions in this period. So let me just conclude by giving you an overview of the broader uh, book in a, a notional table of contents and then talking about some implications. This is how I envision, as of February 9th, uh, today, the book looking, right? After an intro theory, I would love to do a chapter on the proto-liberal order, which would be like the Woodrow Wilson period. And this would include exploring covert intervention in the Bolshevik revolution, as well as lots of overt military action in Central and South America, which I think is actually a really understudied period within among IR scholars, the early 20th century and lots of these interventions, um, with the exception of folks like Alex Downs and others who've done some really terrific work. Um, and then these three chapters I just mentioned, the era of constraints, adjustment, and assertiveness, and then conclude with the return of great power competition, talking about its implications for today. So I'm going to tick through six implications and then stop talking, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Here are some scholarly implications. First, I think the book project offers a new uh, take on the scale and scope of liberal order. I think it was both more expansive than uh, skeptics give it credit for, but also um, less powerful or constraining than proponents think. And that I show structural factors help determine the nature of compliance. I think it sheds light on unipolarity debate about whether unipolarity is peaceful or not, and shows that it's not just about the unipol strategy, although that could be quite important, but also the structural factors and the, the fact that violating the liberal order is less costly in unipolarity also helps explain the proclivity towards overt military force. And I also think it speaks to the burgeoning literature on secrecy and international relations, but imposes some important scope conditions. 
right? So under certain conditions, policymakers are far more likely, particularly when there's reputational and normative issues at stake, to pursue secrecy, but much less concerned by those factors in other periods. And finally, uh, there are some broader foreign policy grand strategy implications. First, I think it helps reinterpret some of the Clinton and Bush 43 years by situating the Iraq War in 03 in its broader structural context that actually shows that Bush was less of an aberration and that we could actually see hints of this as the late 90s were, were moving on in things like Desert Fox and Kosovo. But also that this characterization that the Clinton administration was really liberal, um, actually less liberal than many people suspect because of some of these operations that I was just alluding to. Um, the project contributes to, to debates about grand strategy, um, shows that great power competition matters more for how violations happen rather than whether they'll occur. And one critique of deep engagement, specifically in unipolarity, is that it encourages adventurism. And the claim here is that it encourages a certain form of overt military action and violations of liberal order, but that the same kinds of actions are just taking place in secret in other periods, which, depending on your preferences for grand strategy, may be a good thing or irrelevant. But I wanted to flag, and it has implications for this debate about the rise of China and the return to uh, great power competition as the U.S. and China compete over the allegiance of foreign states and powers and in other issue areas, we might see a return to the kind of secrecy and discretion we saw during the Cold War. Um, but again, we're in a new era of adjustment where we should see policymakers wrestling with this. So with that, I'm going to stop talking. Really looking forward to your questions. I'm going to be taking notes on my computer and not, uh, not ignoring you, but I just want to make sure I'm capturing all the goodness. So thanks. You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays at SSP featuring Dr. Michael Poznanski. He will now take questions from the audience. Please excuse our dust while we work to increase the clarity of audience questions. Professor Vipin Narang. Can you talk a little bit more about how you conceive of measure operationalized violations of the LIO, especially in the cases? Uh, second quick question is the transition between adjustment and assertiveness. It seems a little blurry and ad hoc. Can you talk about why you chose that as a cutoff point? Because I do think that is interesting, that period. Uh, but, you know, why is sort of, you know, is it Desert Fox is sort of your, your first example? Like, why is that the cutoff? It's the Clinton administration, same people, same sort of, you know, what causes that to be the cutoff? There's nothing exogenous. Um, I can think of, well, a domestic political exogenous event that sort of changes um, administration, but that really doesn't have anything to do with the LIO. So, you know, can we just talk about the transition and the cutoff point between them? Very, very finally, um, uh, the, the covert sort of violation. If I understand Austin Carson's argument right, it's sort of, there's this collusion between powers with covert action because they don't want, they're trying to manage escalation. Here, I'm a little less, uh, I, I'm, I'm, it's hard for me to understand the logic of why the victim of a covert violation would keep it covert, right? Isn't the incentive to sort of name and shame? And you don't have sort of the escalation management argument that Austin Carson has. So why does the victim of victim, whatever, the target of the covert violation maintain, have any incentive to maintain the fiction of covert? So just some things on the table and other people can pick up on all of that. Thank you. 
Um, in, in reverse order, I think. Um, I, I don't actually think that targets have any incentive to collude, so I totally agree with you. And I, I should mention, so I think some of Austin's um, argument about the dynamics of covert action and its sources would be complementary, or some of my some of the cases I'm interested in would be a scope condition. So, for example, if you're intervening on the doorstep of a rival, I don't think it really matters whether or not um, you care about reputation, right? In those cases, like Iran 1953, and some of the cases Austin's looking at um, in Afghanistan and elsewhere, I think the, the escalation imperatives are really strong. Now, it, it could be, I do want to tease out the balance of causal weight I'm assigning to reputation or legitimacy concerns and escalation. But I don't think the target would have any incentive. I think what, how a lot of policymakers dealt with this in the past. So like in the, the Bay of Pigs, just a case I, I know well and so I'm thinking about, you know, why did the United States stick with the fiction of plausible deniability, even when it was plastered all over the newspaper? And policymakers uh, like Richard Bissell, the senior CIA officer, basically says we had technical deniability. And so I think policymakers gamble that they might get caught, but they'll still reduce or minimize the reputational damage, whether or not that's rational, you know, to, to TBD. But I, I think that's kind of how they're thinking about it. Um, on the transition from adjustment to assertiveness, um, this this kind of I don't have strong cutoffs and it's a little bit unsatisfying in terms of theoretical crispness. But I, I think, you know, as I was digging into these cases, I, I kind of think it's what's going on. And so I think Clinton administration felt kind of burned by the delay and wrangling in Bosnia, for example. And so to me, it it comes out, it, it doesn't sit neatly in one of those boxes, but I, I think it's. It speaks nicely to this literature, which I'm going to delve more into, and, and you're reminding me that I need to develop that further about learning. And so I think policymakers are testing the waters about what they can get away with and how costly violations would be. And Bosnia, as far as I understand some of the secondary accounts, is kind of seminal for them in thinking that in cases where we want to proceed unilaterally in the future, that we're not going to be bogged down in cases when we diverge from Europe, and that it wouldn't be as costly. But something I'm going to look into, <laughs> including... Uh, yeah, I didn't talk about alternative explanations, but domestic politics, including scandals and other other kinds of things, will be will be key. To your first one, this is, I think, the biggest tension about debates surrounding liberal order, like Kosovo. I don't know if that's what you had in mind, but yeah, yeah people describe it as illegal but legitimate, right? Because on the one hand, it's circumventing the Security Council. On the other hand, it's for good humanitarian reasons. Um, yeah, there's something I'd have to wrestle with. What what I would say is. Things like the advent of R2P, responsibility to protect, I think that kind of was a way for some states to square that circle where they want to uphold humanitarian precepts, but they don't want to, but but they still, that, that had to be channeled to the Security Council and they don't want that to go too far. And so I, I think policymakers, of course, have an incentive to emphasize the liberalness of the military operations they're conducting, like humanitarian my, my sense is the, the stronger or clearer rules would be those governing the conditions under which states can use force for humanitarian purposes. And so I, I, have, to think, I have to think a little bit more about it, but you're, you're right that there is often a tension between... Yeah, go ahead. Violations and substantive violations of the LIO. And the cases seem to focus on procedural violations and not as much as substantive violations. And I think sort of coming into this, I was thinking more of sort of violations, substantive violations. And you could even have that distinction uh, and theorize, you know, like, like you said, learning is a big piece of Kosovo is, is, you know, precisely because we don't want to deal with a Bosnia like UNSCR, UN again, right? And so you circumvent it 
but for, for to substantively uphold the LIO, at least in the view of the Clinton administration, right? So it might be interesting to separate those out. And, you know, the, the, the procedural violations are probably less interesting than the substantive violations. Yeah, I, I think, um, and I'll, I'll shift to others, but I, I think that's right. You know, the reason I focused on the procedural as opposed to substantive, I think is because my read of like Eikenberry and others with strategic restraint, to me, that's kind of premised on tying my hands and following procedural rules. But you're right that they're part of the challenge of this liberal order debate is there, there's that tension between substance and procedures. So something I want to think a lot more about. Thanks, Pippin. Professor Maria Grinberg. Thanks for your presentation. I have a couple of questions rapid fire, so apologies about that. So first question is, to what extent are you talking about the same order? Because if we look at the proponents of the liberal order, they talk about Leo 2.0 and then Leo 3.0. So they periodize it themselves and talk about it as distinct entities. The Mearsheimer argument also periodizes it and talks about distinct orders. So to what extent are you talking about different rules that appeal to different orders and not changes within the exact same order? Then um, second, Vipin's comment, but the way I would phrase it is, who gets to interpret what compliance actually is? And sort of here, we can take a look at, this is a domestic politics example, but I can't think of a good uh, international politics example, but if we take a look at what Putin is doing domestically, right? So switching spots with Medvedev to make sure that he doesn't stay in power longer than the constitution allows, well, that's compliance it subverts what the whole point of democracy is meant to be, but he's complying with the rules and he's making sure that he's seen to be complying with the rules, right? So it depends on who's interpreting what compliance is and that I think matters for especially a liberal order. And then the most important question I think is, your theory starts with the idea that complying with order is good, or at least being seen as complying with an order is a good in itself. Specifically for legitimacy, Oh, as a side note, lock-in not, should not be dependent on compliance because then it doesn't actually lock anything in. But the, the benefit of being seen as complying is this legitimacy thing. But why would anyone care about legitimacy if your specific theory specifically tells us that compliance doesn't actually happen? Which means that legitimacy is in a sense a joke because legitimacy should come from actually complying with the order not just being seen as complying with the order. So the, how do you square that circle? So it, to the extent, am I talking about the same order? Yeah, I think this is another, this is part of the reason I bound the book to use of force decisions. That doesn't totally obviate it, right? But if you think about how proponents are talking about the Biden administration liberal order, it's far more expansive than I think even the early interpretations and includes climate and, and other norms and substantive rights that I think were absent or lacking from initial conceptions. So use of force is getting around that somewhat. And I, I don't think those rules have changed. I mean, they've evolved a little bit to, to get back to the issue about R2P. You know, that was not conceived of at the, you know, the post-war order. And it was kind of this evolving, uh, this evolving procedural substantive tenet, which basically said sovereignty is not, that shouldn't be a barrier to protecting your own civilians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I, I think there is room for evolution, but they can't, as far as I understand it, if you are advocating for liberal order, it, it can't be that the United States on its own is generating new substantive or procedural rights. It would have to be some kind of consensus. So to the extent that you see those, I would expect the U.S. to, to kind of abide by the, the tenets here. Um, but I, I think that the Mearsheimer arguments and arguments by LIO 2.0, et cetera, 
I think you're right, and I should I should probably say something about that, both as it pertains to the use of force, if that's become more expansive over time, and also other areas, even if it's not going to be in in the book directly. Um, yeah, who gets to interpret compliance? Um, I I think. It certainly can't be the United States to the extent that it's the one violating rules, right? Because even in Iraq 03, um, and I, I, I can think of some names I won't say specifically, but proponents of that war still pitched it as an exercise in upholding the liberal order, both for substantive reasons, kind of as, as Vipin was pointing to, but also procedural. They said, look, these Security Council re resolutions from throughout the 1990s gave us the justification. It's just that France and Russia didn't want to do it and China. So it can't be the United States because policymakers are always going to couch their actions, I think, in ways that appear liberal, even if it's not consistent. So it has to be others. Then that gets to, is that important for the theory in terms of how I think leaders respond? And the short answer is, I don't think so. So I want to kind of focus on leaders, how leaders anticipate reactions and respond. And whether or not they're actually credible at the end of the day or what have you, I think is important, but not directly pertinent. But I, I'll definitely address it because to the extent that it affects actual behavior, even if not in a single case over time, it would be important. Um, and, and finally, why does anyone care about um, legitimacy? I, I, I suspect you mean, can you clarify, if, if covert actions are always exposed or U.S. attempts to conceal violations are always exposed. Why would anybody buy that when the U.S. does comply, it's legitimate? Is that... But if everyone knows that the rules are always broken, what does legitimacy actually buy you? Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, good copy. I, um, I've long thought that. To, I'm not going down this road in this book, actually, but there's a there's a project here to test whether being seen secretly violating a rule, how do others perceive that? Do they think that it's more nefarious because you've gone out of your way to conceal it? Or do they actually think that you acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong? And so therefore, there's some sense that you're abiding by constraints. So I don't know which way that cuts. I think it could cut conceivably towards the latter. But again, back to how leaders anticipate. I think in a lot of cases, they hope that they won't get caught. It raises broader questions about why would they ever think that? And then therefore, why if U.S. policymakers know that others know that they never follow rules, why would they even bother? Um, I, I don't have a good answer to that, other than I think they, they kind of do often treat cases as sui generis, especially over longer stretches of time, but it's something I'll, I'll think about. Thanks. Graduate student Raymond Wong. Um, yeah, thanks so much for this presentation. Uh, this is super interesting for me, especially uh, since, oh, I'm a third year in the program. Um, and my project is kind of the mirror image of this project in that I'm looking at rising power strategies towards the international order. So this has been very useful. Um, I'm gonna ask a very self-serving question because uh, hope, <laughs> this is a problem I've been struggling with and I'm hoping maybe your answer can, can help me. Um, so basically it seems like your DV, so the different types of compliance would, some of it would weaken the LIO and some of it would strengthen the LIO, right? The LIO is not this sort of static thing, especially in your time frame and in your project's time frame. So I guess my question is how could you speak more to like how 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 these different uh, or do you incorporate sort of changes to the LIO um, as a as a result of like these different types of, of, of 
of compliance. Yeah, thanks, Raymond. I, first, let me say, I think, um, yeah, focusing on rising powers strategies and other non-US cases is really fruitful. So I look forward to seeing, seeing what you come up with. Um, yeah, I think this, this complements nicely Maria's question as well about the evolution of liberal order over time. Um, I think there's two ways to think about that, right? One is the procedural and substantive tenets of the liberal order can themselves expand and change. And the second way to think about it is U.S. behavior has an effect on how others interpret the legitimacy or robustness or, or, um, or how integral something is to the liberal order. So my, my sense is that apart from really, and again, I, sh I maybe should have mentioned a little more clearly, the book focuses on um, use of force in particular because I mentioned that I think it's, it's a little amorphous in a lot of cases to think about the liberal order in, in the aggregate or, or in the abstract. Um, so I don't think the rules governing the use of force have changed all that much, um, and with the exception of the responsibility to protect, which after Libya in 2011, I don't think Russia would ever accede to again in, in, through a Security Council resolution. Um, but I do think it's become more expansive or, or proponents have wanted it to become more expansive over time. And it will be interesting to see how the United States responds to those changes. I think as, you know, both on trade and kind of diplomatic rules and, and other substantive things like climate. Um, I do think there's been some variation and it would be a good project or enterprise to see how U.S. compliance has changed on those. Uh, but when it comes to the use of force, I, I think it's been relatively static with the exception of kind of fleshing out those uh, substantive versus procedural rights that, that we were talking about. Thanks. Professor Barry Posen. I guess I have... Uh a few observations, maybe from the 20,000-foot level. Um, one is, uh, when I look at your four boxes, fame, convenient, brazen, non, and brittle compliance, it, it basically seems like there ain't much compliance. And um, if there ain't much compliance, then uh, you've basically backed into saying that um, the liberal aspects of this thing are actually not important. And if that's what your argument is, then you probably should add to your preamble, which is pretty interesting as it stands, which is I'm going to show you some variation and why the variation occurred. Uh, you're nevertheless implicitly saying doesn't matter very much. So you should ask yourself why that's true um, and what it means for your overall argument. Second, I guess I'm seconding Maria Grinberg's observation, but maybe expanding it. Um, I, I, I don't think it's um, helpful. I guess maybe that's the wrong word, but I, I think you, you need a much more uh, a richer definition of what legitimacy is to be able to open the talk and open the book. Uh, legitimacy with which audiences? What causes legitimacy with which audiences? I can think of three or four audiences the United States has been pitching to. The American people, uh, the populations of our allies, uh, our allies as powers, as countries, as great powers, our adversaries as great powers. Um, the people of the country were getting ready to beat the snot out of. I mean, there's lots of different or, or people in the region. And, and so there's audiences, but there's also the question of what is legitimacy exactly? 
and what do you think it arises from? And here, I, I, my observation is that you've essentially accepted the the um, the legitimacy theory of the liberals in your approach to the whole project. And I would say that's probably not the only theory of legitimacy that's out there. Because it seems to me that it's worth your while to consider whether or not there's a realist theory of legitimacy, right? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, Morgenthau had one buried in there, in, in that tome. There's, some, there's everything in that original tome. And if you look hard enough, you're going to find that too. Uh, but th there is some power-based theory of legitimacy among great powers. And it, I think it has mostly to do with order, with how power is used and whether power is used in a way that's conducive to that hoary old term stability. It's conducive to, to general peace if it allows everyone to get on with their business, right? And that's sort of the realist um, uh, theory of legitimacy in a nutshell, but I think it, it, it needs to be fleshed out. So th those are 20,000 foot kind of level observations that I think would help you contextualize this project a bit more. And I enjoy the project. You know, anybody who tries to parse the grand strategy debate, parse the positions, it's helpful because uh, there isn't enough grand strategy being done and people do it kind of sloppily, including yours truly. So, you know, taking it apart is a great thing. And I, I, I enjoy that. But, but in terms of your larger purposes, I think you want to look at these things. And finally, just a bibliographical reference. Uh, you know, Marty Finnamore has an article on hypocrisy somewhere in, in maybe in maybe it's in the work on unipolarity, right? And I think she tries to develop a theory about how much hypocrisy is tolerable from the leader of an, an order or the, a liberal order. And I think she says quite a lot, but I can't remember why. But yeah, you might, if you haven't taken a look at it, maybe it, maybe you want. Anyway, thanks for the talk. Uh, thanks, Barry. So I, just a few quick reactions, super helpful. Um, I, on audiences, I should have mentioned, I do have in the, in the written theory chapter, I kind of puzzle through um, a variety of audiences, many of which you named, right? So the U.S. could be signaling to, to the American public. It could be, and I, I have something on allies, that's both the leaders of those countries and their populations, as you, as you mentioned, also rivals and their populations and broader regional opinion. Um, right. So, so I, I kind of flesh, I, I identify them in the, in the written, um, version of the talk, but I, I could do more to flesh out whether they each interpret U.S. actions in the same way and whether maybe most interestingly, they could often work at cross purposes, right? Because the American public may care less, for example, about compliance with procedural liberal order than other countries. Allies might care more than obviously rivals, um, and so on and so forth. So that's something I'm going to, I'm going to definitely flesh out more. Um, to your first point, I'm kind of, I'm kind of um, not going in order here, but yeah, I, I do think I'm essentially saying that there's not much genuine compliance. I think I would just modify what you said that way. So brittle and convenient compliance do appear to be complying with the liberal order or following at least what it procedurally suggests you ought to. I just think if you look at the empirical record, which I suspect you'll be sympathetic to, there's not a lot of genuine compliance by the United States with the liberal order. In other words, when it was inconvenient to comply, the U.S. basically, according to this story, pursued one of two non-compliant strategies. It either hid, hid what it was doing or it did it openly and brazenly. 
So I basically do accept that uh, premise, and I, I think I should just make that a little more uh, a little more clear on the front end. Um, yeah, Marty Fenimore, that, that article is is terrific, and I think the um, yeah she she is writing in the context of unipolarity and the idea is that hypocrisy basically. I think she maybe it's the, I'm conflating her foreign affairs article, but it's like the glue or the lubricant that makes the whole system work. People can kind of look the other way. Um, and and that for this reason, I think she and um, and Henry Farrell wrote this piece on why transparency in the in the modern age was actually a bad thing, because it made manifest a lot of the hypocrisy that was otherwise hidden in the past. So I'm going to plug into that more directly. And then finally, on legitimacy. Yeah, I am. Um, I guess implicitly what I'm saying in this project is it derives from complying with the rules or at least tying one's hands. And I, I, if that's what I want to say, I should make that crystal clear and then let others um, and then have an argument about it. Um, but I do think I'm conceiving of legitimacy instrumentally in the sense that which in, in a way that I think might be familiar to realists, which is that um, legitimacy is is broadly useful in the way that like Steve Walt and Sarah Kreps and others talk about it, which is not, uh, you know, necessarily an innate good, um, but it, it buys other states compliance. They feel like they're following the right leader. They're less likely to defect and so on and so forth. Um, but that, that's something I'm going to flesh out in a lot more detail um, based on your comments. I appreciate them a lot. Alumni Sarah Plana. Hi, Mike. This is extremely exciting. It's cool to see what you're working on. Um, happy to talk about all of this offline at any point. So I had a bit of a sort of comment and then a related question. Um, so if I understand correctly, the role great power competition is sort of playing in your argument is that it makes compliance more beneficial or makes it more likely that the U.S. complies. Or more specifically, I, the way that I understand it, it increases the cost of non-compliance with the LIO because rivals can point to their violation. Um, and correct me if that understanding is incorrect. But my comment is sort of that I actually see that there, and part of what I struggled with in this logic is that I actually see a many ways in which great power competition could make compliance more costly. I think the most obvious one is that rivals, um, when you know there's a shift in polarity, rivals are more powerful and able to restrain your ability to achieve your goals abroad, even absent the LIO. Um, which I guess maybe connects to the burden of compliance, which brings me to my second like, point slash question, which is what do you consider as the main determinants or indicators of burden of compliance? Because in your survey of cases, I saw a number of variables actually, and I was wondering which one you see as most important. Um, I saw things like the nature of the rule itself, um, efficacy beliefs maybe, uh, shift uh, perceptions of the burden of compliance, um, and the nature of the rule and efficacy beliefs interact with the conditions in the theater of the war itself, uh, and also the preferences of, of the United States for how to conduct the war, so things like no boots on the ground, those sorts of things, and also how, how likely the U.S. can get other actors to work with it. All of these were sort of in this variable that you call burden of compliance. Um, and I think my question to you is, um, which of those factors are like the most important? And I think um, part of it to me is that most importantly, some of those issues might actually be affected by the threat environment, the other variable, things like conditions in the theater or 
um, the propensity of Europeans to sign on to particular parts of the NATO campaign, those types of things. So thanks. Um, thank you, Sarah. Great to see you uh, virtually. Uh, yeah, in terms of the main determinants of the burden of compliance, um, you're right, the current version does remain a bit agnostic, but tries to put some meat on the bones by fleshing out some of the determinants or, or key factors, I think. Explain that. Um, you, you hit on some of them, which is um, the nature of the rule itself, beliefs about efficacy. I think in the case of use of force, for example, what would affect the burden of compliance? One factor is the target in which the United States wants to intervene. Um, and the reason for that is... You know, in Kosovo, part of the reason the United States, I suspect, gets a lot of support for uh, UN operation in Haiti, for example, is that it just doesn't really implicate China or Russia in any meaningful way. And so they're more likely to sign on to a Security Council resolution, whereas Kosovo right on the doorstep, Milosevic um, uh, is um, is a target that Yeltsin is unwilling to, to go after directly. And so I think it probably has to do with lots of things like the target. Um, which could affect Security Council dynamics. Um, it could also, it could be affected by the speed of the crisis itself. So in the Gulf War, you know, there's been a lot written. Alex Thompson's got a terrific book called Channels of Power, which talks about the fact that the U.S. working through the U.N., it wasn't totally costless, right? The United States had to wait to, um, to enforce the economic embargo that the U.N. had actually authorized. They had to wait several months to build a coalition. Um, ultimately, the U.S. still thought they could proceed through those channels and get what they wanted. Um, but it probably yeah, has to do with the nature of the target, the nature of the crisis, um, whether there are multiple international organizations that could authorize a military action. So, for example, in Latin America, the United States, especially during the Cold War, often relied on the Organization of American States or other entities in order to legitimize their actions because the U.N. Security Council was deadlocked. And so availability um, could matter. I, I, I'm going to think a little bit more about whether I want to come down firmly on one of those, but at the very least, um, I think it merits articulating as much of an exhaustive list as I think I can, and then justifying whether or not those components of the burden of compliance are related to the broader theory, which I, I think was, was your comment. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Thanks. Graduate student Julian Rippey. Um, thanks. Um, so this is just sort of similar. One thing I noticed when you were going through the cases is that um, the coding depended on the goals that the US had. Um, so one thing I would like to see as you explore this idea of burden is what is it burdening, right? What is the US trying to achieve? Because I could also see a uh, alternative story where the US has the same goal the entire time and it finds it convenient at the beginning to comply. But then as that doesn't work, right, as working with the, the LIO doesn't actually let it achieve its real goal, it will start to escalate and stop complying. And just as a suggestion for maybe a way that you could explore this and maybe eliminate some alternative explanations would be to take uh, Iraq through the whole 90s as sort of like a macro case and just show that Maybe there is this one goal, right, that we can hold constant and show that it's the changes in the LIO that are driving this rather than something within the U.S. Um, thank you. Yeah, I think what you said about Iraq, um, spot on. Right now I'm kind of full steam ahead on, uh, on fleshing out the book. If I was ever to do an article version of this, I think it would do something like Iraq and go from Desert Storm through 03. Um, Thompson's book actually does do that. 
Um, but I think we, we arrived at somewhat different conclusions about um, why the U.S. proceeded as it did. Um, but I, I think that's helpful because, you know, one of, the, one of the challenges of interpreting patterns of U.S. use of force is that the instances in which they're using force in the 90s do look different than the instances in which the United States is using force in the Cold War. So the Cold War, I would submit, is primarily geopolitically driven. It has to do with leaders who might tilt towards the Soviet Union or other economic interests. Many of the interventions of the 1990s, like Haiti, Somalia, Bosnia, Kosovo, involve at least some humanitarian component. I'm not going to claim that's the whole, right? Um, especially in Europe, the U.S. is worried about stability on the continent. And so in that way, there are some parallels um, in terms of regional stability and so forth. Um, yeah, and so th this is one thing where Iraq is nice in that regard because to the extent that it's consistent, there's the cases in which the U.S. uses force against Saddam Hussein, leaders talk about you know, the humanitarian component, but they really are interested in deposing Saddam. They view him as a menace. He's threatening oil. Um, Scowcroft refers to Saddam as challenging the Carter Doctrine, right, of U.S. Um, freedom of movement and preventing threats and challenges in the Persian Gulf. Um, so I, I think the, the key then, yeah, is identifying, even if the goals are different, that the impetus for action in each case is still the same, right? There are still the same rules. What are they? Do they vary? Dealing with that would also address full circle back to Vipin's point about some of the humanitarian cases are more substantively complicated than the cases during the Cold War, which didn't have a clear liberal substantive tinge to them, right? They were primarily straightforward, you know, geopolitical contests. And so it, it's a complicating factor, and you're right. So showing that it's consistent in a case like Iraq, where maybe that's subdued, would give us more confidence that um, the, broader, the broader theory is telling us something. Um, even if there are other reasons um, why the U.S. would act. So last thing I'll say is I would accept that with the rise of unipolarity, this kind of gets to Maria's point, too, about periodizing the order. Yeah, the U.S. is interested in using forces in cases it would not have conceived of using it during the Cold War. The key, as I kind of want to articulate here, is the rules governing those decisions didn't change, as evidenced by the fact that the U.S. still feels it needs to act multilaterally and through NATO and ideally through the U.N., so there's, there are lots more opportunities, I think, where the U.S. is interested in flexing its muscle. But ideally, I, I want to show that the constraints are the same. But you're right. I, Iraq would be doing a lot of valuable methodological work, I think, for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about that. Thanks. Graduate student Suzanne Freeman. Okay. I think my, my major question, I think, is I think you've answered it partially through your answers to other questions which is that are you mainly interested in explaining the behavior of the U.S. or is your theory able to explain the behavior of major great powers like the U.S., Russia, and China or other minor great powers who are looking to comply in the, in the Leo like the U.K. or Japan? Sort of how much explanatory power are you looking for and what you're, theor and what you're theorizing? Yeah, I won't say who, who mentioned this to me, but I thought it was absolutely right. When I was thinking about this book, uh, a friend and colleague said something like, you know, a lot of IR scholars are really writing about U.S. foreign policy, but it's cloaked in the language of broader theory and all their cases are about the U.S. And so um, it's not entirely true, but I think it does explain a lot. And um, yeah, so in this case, I just unabashedly about U.S. foreign policy. I don't want to make any claims more broadly. Um, the only thing I'll say is to the extent that other countries, whether who are um, propagating rival orders or who care about being seen complying for the same reasons, I think it would apply 
I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. Has some really interesting stuff by you know Arnie Westad and others that the Soviet Union cared about its image, uh, you know, somewhat ironically as kind of a proponent of anti-imperialism and and so forth. Um, so I, I, I'm open to the idea that it could apply, but I, I'm in the book. I'm not going beyond what, what I think it says about U.S. foreign policy. Totally fair question. I should just say that explicitly, right? And then maybe suggest some cases where it might apply, or if it doesn't, say why it doesn't. It's helpful. Thank you, Professor Eric Lynn Greenberg. Uh, thanks so much for the talk. I guess two questions. They're mostly second, or like two fingers on things that have already been asked. I'm going to ask both. Uh, so the first really builds on Sarah's question from earlier about the, the conceptualization of costs, right? There's obviously lots of factors that go into this, but maybe one way of thinking about this is that there's actually like two related but very distinct elements uh, of the costs and burdens, right? So one is the ability to actually work through this LIO and get something done. And the second is these kind of subsequent costs that the organization or the state might face, right, for, for not working through it. And so maybe thinking about which of those plays a bigger role in shaping uh, the compliance strategy. Uh, the, the second kind of builds on this Maria Barry train of questions, um, but maybe from a slightly different framework, right? And that's how do we conceive of what the liberal order actually looks like? And it's, you know, how do we think about uh, venue shopping in terms of your typologies, right? So you, you brought up this notion of, okay, going to the, the OAS instead of maybe getting a UN Security Council resolution that might be the gold standard. So how do we think about this, right? Because we're actually theoretically complying with international law, but maybe not meeting that gold standard. Thanks. What, one thing I should have mentioned is not an answer directly to your question, but it relates to burden, is it's both about the likelihood I can work through the LIO and, and get what I want, and also the stakes involved in the objective I'm pursuing. And that's pretty important. I didn't mention it here because I'm kind of viewing the stakes as moderately important, not existential, but not ancillary. And the reason the stakes are important is if the burden is really high, but it's something I don't care about, I might not act, right? And so it kind of affects the burden in that way. And so I want to, my case selection strategy is partially to, to mitigate that. Um, yeah, so I, I point, point taken on the first one, the ability to work through the LIO and get something done. Um, and you said substantive cost, I might face? Subsequent cost, right? Oh, subsequent cost, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, um, I think that's right. I would lean more heavily towards the first because the second one bleeds into the other variable, but... Yeah, I, I think I think you're right that if I if I do something and it's this nuclear option, I go you know against the wishes of what the LIO suggests, and there are all these huge costs. Maybe that would affect how I view the burden of compliance, right? Because if I think they're going to let me get away with it, it's in. And many people make this argument about Panama, for example, in '89, right? Why did the Bush administration intervene unilaterally in Panama, but um, multilaterally in the Gulf War? People say, you know, it's because it was in the U.S. sphere of influence in its own backyard. The OAS even objected in that case. Um, so I, I think I need, th that's a good point because it could affect regionally how, how um, those dynamics play out. And then in terms of how we conceive of liberal order and things like venue shopping, yeah, I, I think it's on a continuum, right? I think policy make, this is my, my take, not necessarily as, you know, theoretically derived. I think policymakers in the Cold War thought the UN Security Council is deadlocked, not through any fault of our own, right? I'm just spitballing here. And so if I'm going to act multilaterally, which I ought to, I'm going to work through another organization. It has to be, it's complicated, but it has to be like these Article 52 through 54 of the UN specifies these dynamics and they're contested. Um, 
But I think that's basically what they were thinking, is people aren't going to look at me as venue shopping from the UN to elsewhere, particularly in the Cold War. It would be super interesting to see afterwards, like in Kosovo, do they use the same rationale that they were using in the Cold War? Because now Soviet Union is gone. Russia has signed on to Desert Storm in Bosnia before. So maybe they're, maybe venue shopping becomes less legitimate in the eyes of others, or at least policymakers think it does as time goes on. That would be super interesting. Something I hadn't thought of. So I, I'm going to think more about that. Thanks, Eric. Graduate student, Nick Hi, Ackert. Hi, Michael. My name is Nick Ackert. I'm a third year student in the PhD program. Um, one thing that I was puzzled by was you opened your, your discussion today with mention of two individuals, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and then you brought in Woodrow Wilson. But individuals are noticeably scoped out of what is a structural theory. But the thing that I can't get out of the back of my head is that if I could magically interview every single U.S. president from 1945 to the present, and I asked them to give me a definition of what the LIO actually is, either A, I don't think they'd be able to define it unless one of their aides had a pre-written statement, or B, I think that they would all have very different perceptions of what that is. And I think for Donald Trump, for example, he's made it very clear that for him, liberal order means America first. And so how do we deal with the variation in, in, in how these leaders perceive those differences in cost and benefits? And what's the justification for really keeping the focus on structure? Thanks. Uh, great question. Yeah, leaders are noticeably absent. I, I suspect there'll be somewhat of an alternative explanation. Rule, ruled out if I'm able to show that patterns over time kind of, you know, leaders by and large can form. Um, yeah, I do think leaders can have their own idiosyncratic beliefs. No, no question about that. I think to the extent that the interagency process, or, and this is not really in the theory, but I'm just saying like how these things ultimately, right? What's in the black box? Um, to the extent interagency or State Department legal advisors are giving them advice on whether or not what they're doing is compliant, I'd by and large expect leaders' preferences to to be tailored to those those arguments. Um, but you know what you articulated, there's a clear prediction there that if there's heterogeneity in leaders' beliefs about if what they're doing is liberal, then you would expect that maybe in cases when they think they're upholding the liberal order, they'll act openly, irrespective of whether they can get Security Council or other regional authorization. And in cases when they think what they're doing would violate their conception of liberal order, they won't. And so that's something I think I can dig into in these particular cases and see, am I observing homogeneity in responses notwithstanding causal beliefs? Um, or uh, can I get more richness? And there, there are multiple ways to slice it, right? There's the, every leader has his or her own unique beliefs. There's the Saunders, Elizabeth Saunders' um, great work about you could still bin leaders according to different, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can kind of bin leaders notwithstanding subtle differences. So I'm going to think more about that, but I, I, it'll definitely come up as an alternative, um, if nothing else. So nice. thanks. Wonderful. Well, um, we're at the end of my list, uh, so all that remains is to uh, thank Mike for a terrific uh, and stimulating talk. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.